All right, well, let's uh, pray. open the word of prayer. We're going to dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, Lord. As we go to your word right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, I thank you for everyone who's here, all that are watching on live stream right now. And Lord, may you minister to every heart. No one's here by chance, all by divine appointment. And Lord, as we look at the letters to the seven churches, this morning looking at the persecuted church, and Lord, just the words of encouragement and exhortation to believers who are going through great persecution, no doubt that's a, an encouraging message for all of us here this morning that may be going through difficult times, to know that you're a faithful God, a loving God, and a merciful God, and we don't go through these things alone. And so Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So Revelation, as we've talked about, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word is apocalypsis. It literally means the unveiling. So the book of Revelation is really get, helping us get to know Jesus better. It certainly is the book known for prophecy, end times, right? And we're going to get to that. But chapter 1 was really just a vision of Jesus in heaven. Chapters 2 and 3 is the church age. There's a letter to seven churches. And again, all those letters were written to specific churches, but it, it, it speaks of the entire church, including our church. And so last week, we saw the church that was commended in so many ways, the church at Ephesus. You know, if you read through the beginning of that chapter, you would think, man, that's a church I want to go to, because they seem to have it all in line. They seem to be doing everything right. Let me just refresh your memory quickly. So we saw the description of Jesus in heaven. Again, let me remind you of that as well, because it bears repeating you know, that he was clothed with a garment down to his feet. He was girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow. I'll never dye my hair after reading that. Can I get an amen? His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet like fine brass, if refined in a furnace. His voice was a sound of many, river, um, many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Guys, that's our Savior, amen? And just remember that, the, that our God is greater than whatever trial you may be going through. Whatever we're going through in this life, we serve a great and an awesome God, and I look forward to seeing him face to face. And then last week, we looked at the first of the seven churches in Ephesus, and this is how it was described. It's a faithful church. Well, we need more of that, Amen. It's a faithful church. It was also a church that was busy doing the Lord's work, laboring unto exhaustion. They would not bear or stand for those who were evil. They tested all things against the word of God. They called out false teachers as liars. They persevered in the face of great persecution. They labored for the name of the Lord, and they did not grow weary in well-doing. But then he said, but nevertheless, in spite of all these wonderful things in your lives, in spite of all the wonderful things you're doing as a church in Ephesus, I have something against you. And when God has something against you, that's not good. Amen? We don't want that. And what he said is, you've left your first love. And the word left there doesn't mean that they got lost on accident. It literally means that they had made a conscious choice to walk away from the Lord in the way that they loved him. And there's a, there's a danger in religion, a word I don't really care for. And what it is, the danger is that there's this, this understanding or this concept that you know, we can be so religious and doing so many things for God that we lose sight of the fact that we need to be in love with the Lord. Amen? That it's a love relationship. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And then he encouraged them and gave them keys to restoration. So uh, that's on the website. You can grab that. If you've got your outline for this week, oh, uh, grab that. And we're going to look at Revelation uh, ch chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And remaining faithful in the midst of the storm. Anybody here going through any trials right now? Okay. And, and we know in the Bible, it says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, not if, but when. And we all go through trials and difficulties in this life. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And so I tell the message, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm, in the midst of persecution and trials, and then four reasons to remain faithful. And all these reasons have everything to do with Jesus all about Jesus. These are reasons why that we can remain faithful and encouraged in the midst of the storm. First of all, because of who we serve. We don't serve a dead God. We don't serve a government. Thank you, Jesus. We don't serve the things of this world. We serve the true and living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all things, 
all-glorious, almighty God. So we serve that He is a great, not just our, our Savior, but our Lord. Amen? As born-again believers, it's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not just praying a prayer, but it's surrendering our lives fully to Him, making Him Lord of our life. So one of the reasons why we can remain faithful in the midst of the storm is because of who we serve. Number two, because Jesus knows. Have you ever, ever in your life had a moment where you thought, does Jesus care? Does God really care? Why is he letting me go through this? And you know what? There are times in our life when we will go through great difficulty and we'll think that God, is he not paying attention? And that's all condemnation that comes from the enemy because we know better than that. Amen. But isn't it good to know that he knows? You're not alone. He knows. He cares. And he has been there. Whatever trial you're going through, he's gone through worse. Amen? Whatever persecution you may face, he was persecuted more. He knew the heartbreak of, of Lazarus' death in the tomb. Of, he knew heartbreak of seeing people desert him. Uh, people, again, speak against him. Uh, people that he came to suffer and die for, beating him and, and cursing his name. So he knows what the trials that we've gone through because he's been through them himself. And guys, when we go through it, we're not going through it alone. And we need to be reminded of that. You know, you're his child. He loves you and he goes through the trial with you. The only time we allow our children to endure pain is when it's going to make them better. Amen? I always have this memory of my daughter, Ashley. She was a newborn and I had to take her in for a shot that she needed. And daddy protects baby girl, right? And so she's in my arms, and she knows in my arms that's a safe place. And so she was not real happy when we were in a room, and I'm holding her in my arms, and I let some man come up and stick her. And her eyes looked, I still remember it, her eyes got big, and they got all, tears started running, and like, Daddy, what have you done? I thought you cared about me. And again, in that case, it was something that she needed that was for her own good. And guys, when we go through trials, our God knows. He's our Abba Father. He loves us. He goes through it with us. And if he allows us to go through it, it's for his glory and to mold us more into the image of our Savior. Amen? So no suffering is wasted, and we must not lose sight of that. Number three, because it's temporary. The storms of this life will pass. And there's a day coming when there's going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, and no more suffering. Amen? This is but light affliction when compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. And so whatever trial we're going through, it's not eternal. Now, it could be for the rest of this life. You know, when people say, I was reading through that 1 Peter 5.10, long after my son went to heaven, and it says this suffering is for but a little while. And you, you start to say, well, but wait a minute, it's not a little while, it's the rest of my life. But the rest of my life is a little while compared to eternity. Amen? So even the trial that may last the rest of your life is for but a little while. It is temporary. And again, sometimes He calms the storm and sometimes He calms us. Sometimes He makes the storm stop and sometimes He comforts us and lets the storm go. And so in either case, we don't go through it alone and it is temporary. And then finally, because it's worth it. It's worth it. Again, no suffering is wasted. Our temporary suffering are nothing compared to our eternal reward. And I wrote down here, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. We'll talk about that when we get there. So let's begin looking at remaining faithful in the midst of the storm. We're going to pick up there in Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. Because, four reasons to remain faithful and encourage, because of who we serve. So it says there in verse 8, so he's just written the letter to the church the loveless church in Ephesus. And now it says, and this is Jesus speaking to John. So just as a reminder, John is on the island of Patmos. He had been boiled in oil but wouldn't die. So they shipped him out. Diomitian ships him out to this rock quarry of a prison island. And it's there that the Lord appears to John and speaks to him. And as we've talked about chapter one, he gives him a vision of Jesus in heaven. Chapter two and three talks about the church in the church age. And then chapter four on is we're going to see that John is called up and he looks down upon the earth. And what does he see? He's going to see the tribulation that takes place until Jesus comes back. And so we'll be looking at that starting in uh, chapter four. And so here is a, another church. It says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? So Jesus is saying this directly to John. John's writing it down and delivering it to the church. Now, notice we talked about this last week, the word angel there, the angel of the church. Again, the word there is messenger, and it could be an angel that God had 
spiritually overseeing the church, but more than likely in its context, it's speaking of the messenger to the church, which is the local pastor. So he's saying to them, and what he does in almost all of these, he doesn't do it in this one, but in each one, he tells them how they're doing well, and then he brings correction. This is the one time he doesn't bring correction. This is the one time he's just going to encourage them in the midst of the great trials that they are enduring. So he says, to the angel. And what's interesting, we know who the pastor was in Smyrna in those days. He was a man by the name of Polycarp. You might have heard of him. He was a disciple of John who was martyred in his 90s, and he was pastoring the church in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna, really quickly, was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was this harbor town, and it was a great trade city, and it was a large and beautiful and proud city that had beautiful buildings. We'll talk about what some of them were. And it was a center of learning and culture, and it was famous for its trade in wine. The population was about 100,000 people, and only one of the seven uh, cities of these seven churches, it still exists. It's still there today. Today, it's uh, known, it's in Turkey, it's known as Izmir, but it's uh, a very wealthy city. It's very beautiful, claiming to be the glory of Asia. It was built by Alexander the Great. Ever heard of him? And so they had great wealth, and the city was deeply committed to idolatry. So much so that they had a famous street in Smyrna called the Golden Street, and it stood, uh, as you walk down the street, magnificent temple after magnificent temple to different idols. So the city was known for its idolatry, and Polycarp's plastering a church in the midst of a city that is known for idolatry. Some of the idols were Apollos, uh, Aphrodite, uh, and they had a, the greatest temple of them all at the end of the mountain was to Zeus. So the worship of these pagan gods at this point is starting to die out a little bit. And they started worshiping something else, the Roman emperor. They started worshiping the, the Roman emperor. They started worshiping their, their country, their land. They started worshiping the, the equivalent of the president of the day. In 196 BC, Smyrna built the first temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. Guys, I love being an American. I'm blessed to be an American. I love my country, but it doesn't even come within 5 million miles of how much I love Jesus. Guys, we're not Americans. We're Christians above everything else. Amen? And we got to be careful. And look, I'm as patriotic as they get. I watch the Olympics. I scream for the Americans, even in stuff I would never watch any other time. Can I get an amen to that? I, am, I love our country. I'm blessed to be here. I'm thankful that, to raise my family here. I love it. But guys, we never put our country above our Savior. Amen? We never, you know, kowtow to the government. We, the Bible says to submit to the authorities God's placed over you until they tell us to disobey God. And then we obey God rather than man. Amen? But what is happening here is they had all these idols, and it's easy when you worship one idol to make something else an idol. And all of a sudden, they were worshiping Rome. And then after worshiping Rome, they started worshiping the emperor. And they started proclaiming the emperors to be gods themselves. They started worshiping them. You know what? I'm going to get in trouble for this, but here it goes. Some people were kind of worshiping Trump a little bit. Amen? There were, we, I remember there was a Trump rally on a Sunday, and like 50 people from our church went to a Trump rally instead of a Bible study. And I said, I just didn't know you worshiped Trump. I thought you worshiped Jesus. But other than that, <laughs> by the way, men will always fail you. God never will. Amen? And look, I'm all for voting. I vote conservative. I'm pro-life. Amen? We're going to vote pro-life. We're going to, we're going to vote biblically. We're going to do all of that. But our hope is not in the White House. Our hope is in the throne of grace. Amen? So in Smyrna uh, had won the privilege over 11 other cities to build the first temple to the emperor Tiberius Caesar. And Smyrna was the leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. So here's Polycarp. God bless you, bro. He's in a town that's filled, it's got a street filled with all these different temples to the idols, and now they're the ones building a temple to the emperor to worship the emperor. Emperor worship had begun a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome, but toward the end of the first century, about the time that this was written, um, they had taken Caesar worship to something that you had to do. Now, here's, check this out. Once a year, a Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar, and having done so, they were given a certificate 
that would guarantee that they had, that would show that they had performed their religious duty. It would then allow them to buy and sell. Does it sound familiar? Would allow them to buy and sell and would allow them to run a business. And if you didn't go in and burn a pinch of incense to the godhead of Caesar, the Roman government, then you would be impoverished. You couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't have a job. Everybody would cast you out. And you know what? We're going to see that the church in Smyrna refused to burn the incense. So we're not doing it. We don't care. You're going to lose your job. So be it. I'm honoring God. And it would be so easy. There'd be a temptation. Just go burn a little incense and then just go worship Jesus. It's okay. Just, just compromise for five minutes and then you can live like a Christian. And praise God for people that love the Lord enough that they'd rather be persecuted by the world than compromise their faith. People that would rather die with conviction than live with compromise. Amen? And we need to be those people today. All the Christians had to do was burn that pinch and say Caesar is Lord, and they would have been able to go on with their lives. But guys, the the world might not know, but God would know. Amen? The Christians in Smyrna were surrounded by idolatry and the worship of the emperor and the mandatory worship of, of of the Caesar, the refusal again to declare Caesar as Lord would result in crushing persecution. A level of persecution was worse than anywhere in the Roman Empire. To be a Christian in Smyrna, to show up at church on a Sunday meant you would be persecuted. Again, it wasn't a city of lukewarm Christians. These people knew if I show up at church, I might be fed to lions. If we were going to have church next week and you knew that you might get fed to a lion for showing up, there might be a few more people watching on live stream. Can I get amen to that? But my hope and my prayer is for us that our love for the Lord would come above anything else. Your commitment, you know, you know here's the thing that does happen with persecution. It defines the church, doesn't it? It doesn't change the church. It just shows you what the church looks like. Because if you really love the Lord, you're not going to waver when you're being persecuted. If anything, it makes me want to say charge, Amen. It makes me want to stand up and run through the brick wall in Jesus' name. The word Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. Where do we see that? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Where do we see that? At the birth of Jesus, but also at his death. It was a sweet-smelling perfume used in embalming dead bodies. And at his death, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus brought myrrh to anoint Jesus. The key point is myrrh's fragrance was released and multiplied when it was crushed. And so, the, so Smyrna means myrrh, and myrrh is a fragrant thing that becomes more fragrant when crushed. And here they are, the persecuted church. The Bible rocks, and God knows what he's doing. Can I get an amen to that? So just as the, the fragrance of our Savior's love was released as he was crushed under the weight of our sin, the same way the Christians in Smyrna being crushed by poverty and persecution, their faithfulness produced a sweet-smelling aroma to God. You know, my prayer for all of us is we would live in such a way that our lives would be fragrant to the Lord. It's still true today. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, for we are, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Be encouraged that in the midst of our greatest trials as we are being crushed, our response in faith is not only a testimony to the world around us, but is a sweet smelling aroma to our Savior in heaven. So when we're being crushed by the world, God is using that for his glory. When we go through the biggest trials of life, look, I love to, I love to listen to commentary, or read commentaries and listen to other Bible teachers. And you know who I love to listen to the most? The guys who've gone through the greatest trials and remain faithful. Faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And when someone's faith is trusted, tested and they remain faithful, that can only happen by the power of God. And that's somebody I want to listen to. How about you? Amen. So because of who we serve, and notice it says there, so to the angel of Smyrna, right? This is Smyrna, idolatry all around, worshiping a Caesar, right? Persecution is great. You could die for your faith for standing for the Lord. When you're crushed, a beautiful fragrance comes out. It says, these things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. He's reminding them, by the way, the one who's about to encourage you, let me remind you who's talking, the first and the last, the, the one who was dead and came to life. Again, we always see first who the letter was written to, and then Jesus speaks of his person and his character. We'll see that in each of the seven letters. In each letter's description of himself, is not random, but truths that the church being addressed 
needed to be reminded of. So what these people need to be reminded of, yes, I went and I suffered and died. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the always has been and always will be. I'm the creator of all things. And yes, I was put to death. And yes, I triumphed over sin and death. I rose from the dead. Those are great words for somebody who's afraid they're going to be put to death for their faith. Amen? So he gives them the attribute that they need to hear in light of what they are going through. And it's amazing how God meets us right where we are. And he will minister to our hearts. So the Christians in Smyrna, again, were persecuted, facing potential death. And the description points to the eternal nature of our God. He was here before anything. So what was here before he was here? Nothing, because he was always here. Can I get an amen to that? You You want a headache? He's outside of time and space. So what's out of time? What's outside of space? What is if there's no space? He's outside of time and space. He's before time began. He created time. There was no time till he made their time. Amen? That's our God. We serve a great and awesome God. He's all-knowing, almighty, all-powerful, and no matter how great you think he is, he's greater than that, amen? And he is for us. He's our Abba, amen? He's our Father. It speaks to Jesus' character, and again, it's not random. He existed before all, all else, and he'll be there in the end. The always existent, always in control, eternal one is on our side. And again, who was dead and came to life, reminding these persecuted Christians that they serve a risen Lord. Muhammad is dead. Amen? Buddha, dead. Hare Krishna, dead. L. Ron Hubbard, dead. Charles Taze Russell, dead. Mary Baker Eddy, dead. All these people who created religions are, you know, the things that Joseph Smith, dead. Amen? You know what? They're all dead. We don't serve a dead false prophet. We serve a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? So guys, we don't serve dead gods. And they're being reminded that he was dead, came to life. He was victorious over sin and death. Death couldn't hold him, and it cannot hold his people. Jesus has been right where these persecuted Christians in Smyrna were. He knew what it meant to be persecuted. He knew what it meant to suffer But he also rose from the dead victorious over his suffering. Be encouraged. Whatever you're going through, the Lord has been there. He knows, he understands, and he can help us like nobody else. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore in all things he had been made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered. Being tempted, he was able to aid those who were tempted. He wasn't always tempted and yet without sin. He knows what it's like when we are tempted. Temptation comes from the enemy to draw you away from the Lord. So temptation is something that the enemy uses to draw you away from the Lord. But Bible tells us that with temptation, God makes a way of escape. Amen? And so when we're tempted, God doesn't tempt us. That's the enemy. The Bible tells us that. But when we're tempted, we have a choice. We can run to the thing that will feed our flesh, or we can run to the Lord. And so every time you're tempted, it's an opportunity to fail, but it's also an opportunity to grow. And Jesus is the ultimate example of how we must respond to temptation. Amen? So he's encouraging them and reminding them of who he is as he's about to lay out just some words of encouragement for this church that's being greatly persecuted. It says in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know we can run into God's presence anywhere and anytime? Do you know there's nothing he loves more than when his children come and seek his face? He loves it when we come to him. He loves it. Look, how many parents and grandparents we got in here? Is there anything better than when your kids come and get in your lap? Is there anything better than anything you desire more than that intimate fellowship and just being, having them close to you? There's nothing better. And, and here, that's our Savior. He wants to have intimate fellowship with you. He wants to draw you unto himself. So point number one there of remaining faithful in the midst of the storm, because of who we serve. Again, we don't serve a dead God. We serve a risen living Savior. We don't serve someone who doesn't understand. We serve someone who always has been tempted and yet without sin, who's been greatly persecuted and endured it. And the good news is he walks with us through it. Point number two, because Jesus 
knows. Look what it says in verse 9. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blaspheme of those who say they are Jews and are not. So I know your works, your tribulation and your poverty. Jesus knows. He says, I know. I know. And the word there, gnosko, means to know by experience. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be a human on this planet. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He knew what it was like to grieve. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus, right? So he knew all of those things. He knew what it was like to be betrayed and denied and persecuted. He knew all of that. So he knows. So whatever trial you're going through, he's not a faraway distant God who doesn't care. He's your loving heavenly father who knows what you're going through. He knows. It's easy to think in the midst of great trials and affliction that somehow God has forgotten about you. Why would God let this happen? And maybe you never say that out loud, but at some point you've probably thought it. Amen? Why would God let this happen? Doesn't God know what's going on? You know, why didn't the election go the way I wanted it to, right? Why am I paying so much for gas? Why did I, have, why did I get diagnosed with cancer? Why did my son go to heaven, right? Whatever those things are, we can want to question God. But the reality is we need to know that he knows. See, Satan loves to tell you this. Where's your God now? Where's your God? Where's that God you serve? I get that a lot. You know, most, you know, I have a full-time job. And when they find out you're a pastor, often they'll, oh, I've got questions I've had for a pastor. You're a pa- I got questions for you. And I love when that happens, by the way. I love it. And they'll say things like, why does God allow good things to happen to, bad things to happen to good people? And then you have to clarify for them, there are no good people. So let's clear, let's clear that up. Amen. And the reason that there's evil on this, on this earth is not because of God. It's because of the people that are here. It's our fault, not God's fault. Can I get an amen to that? He gave us free will and we choose to do evil, but the enemy will say, where's your God? Where's that God you serve? And again, this is where that a faith that hasn't been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted because guys, if the first time you go through a trial, you run from God, I have to question whether you ever even knew him. Amen. Because as believers, we should run to him, not from him. Who else has the words of eternal life? Where else can we go? There's nowhere else to go. There's no one else that has the answers that we need. We need to run to the Lord, not from him. Amen? And we need to know that he's a faithful God. Satan loves that what kind of God would let you go through this and do nothing about it. I hear Christians say this, God doesn't answer my prayers. Yes, he does. Sometimes he says no. Amen? God hears our prayer. By the way, we don't pray for our will to be done. We pray for his will to be done. We don't pray to change God's mind, but to change our hearts. When we pray, we're saying, Lord, I want you to mold my heart to yours. I want you to mold you know, my will to thy will. Amen? And, but often you'll hear that. I'll be, well, I pray and God never answers my prayers. Well, guess what? He does. He says no sometimes. Sometimes he says, wait, that's even harder than no. Right? Doesn't give you the answer. But you know what? When God says yes, it's going to be what's best for us. And when God says no, it's going to be what's best for us. Because he's a loving, merciful, and a gracious God. Amen? We're all idiots compared to God, so we pray for dumb stuff sometimes. Amen? He's not a holy Santa Claus in the sky that we just, you know, we come before him and tell him what he needs to do. I'm thankful that he didn't answer all of my prayers. How about you? I've shared this before. Pastor Chuck has shared this many times. He's in heaven now, but he, he said he met this woman when he was in Bible college, and she was strikingly beautiful, and he just thought this was the woman he was supposed to marry. And he said he literally fasted and prayed and cried out to God over and over and over that this would be the woman he would marry, and it didn't happen. She married some, he married somebody else. And then he met his wife, Kay, and he knew why God said no. And then he said he went to the 20-year re- reunion, and he really knew why God said no. <laughs> Said he was in his car driving home saying, thank you, Jesus, for saying no. Amen. But see, Jesus sees. He sees. He knows. He understands. He not only knows because he sees what is happening, but because he knows by personal experience what it means to endure tribulation. He knew it worse than any of us ever will. You know, the trials we go through, there's trials, there's also circumstances. There's two kind of different things. Trials are things that God allows into our life, again, to grow us spiritually and that he might be glorified. But then there's also consequences of our sin. If I go out and commit adultery, my wife will will divorce me, and I won't be a pastor anymore, and my name will be mud. Amen? 
My, my character will be destroyed, my reputation destroyed, and those are consequences of my sin. Trials are not succumbing to temptation, but trials are things that God actually allowed in our life that we may grow spiritually and that he might be glorified. Amen? So when those things count it all joy when you fall into various trials, not if. So Jesus sees, he knows, and he understands. He understands what it's like to have his son die. Amen? He understands. Because he sent his son to die, I get to see my son again. Amen? So, you know, when, when, when we're hurting, know that he's, he's not outside of it. He gets it. He understands it. And it breaks his heart to see you hurting. He loves you. Loves you so much, he'd rather die than live without you, and he proved it on the cross. Amen? So he knows what's happening, and he knows by experience. And whatever you're going through this morning, he knows. You're his child. He loves you. He goes through the trial with you. There's a song that the Lord has used to minister to me in the midst of the trials of this life, and it speaks to the fact that the Lord not only knows, but He's in control, and that He never leaves us alone in the midst of our trials. And it's a song called, Sometimes He Calms a Storm. No doubt many of you have probably heard it, just a little portion of it. He says, Sometimes he calms the storm with a whisper, peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. You know, sometimes he lets the trial go so that we can go through it, and he just goes through it with us. And sometimes he'll get up and he'll calm the sea. But whichever way he does it, it's because he's an all-knowing, almighty, all-perfect God, and we should worship him in spite of all of it. Amen? We should praise him in the midst of the storm, because it's easy to say we love God when everything's perfect, which is rare. That's temporary happiness that the world defines, and it's stuff that's fleeting, but it's trusting God in the midst of the greatest storms of life. In the midst of trials, be encouraged. The Lord will either deliver you from it, or he'll comfort you through it. Let me say that again. In the midst of the trial, he will either deliver you from it or he will comfort you through it. That's our God. Amen? You're never alone. And again, we need to be reminded of that. Notice he says, I know, he says, your works. Like the Ephesian church, Jesus knew the good works that he had done for his kingdom. But along with all the good works, he knew all that they had suffered. He saw how, how faithful they were being. And God knows when you're being faithful, and God knows when you're available, and and God loves to use you if you will but let him. And you know what? When he uses us, we're the ones that get blessed. Amen? When we get to be used by God, is that? and I think we can lose sight of the fact that Almighty God chooses to use us. Couldn't he not open up the heavens and just share the gospel with everybody in one shot? Amen? He could just open up the heavens and go, you know, turn or burn, fly or fry, get right or go left, pray or stay, what are you going to do? He didn't do that though, right? <laughs> what does he do? He uses us. He uses us. He uses imperfect vessels like us, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So he knows their works. He knows how he's used you and continues to use you. But he also knows not just your works, but it also says, and your tribulation. He knows your tribulation. Again, the word here in Greek is flipsis, and it means a pressure, affliction, or anguish, or burden. The word was used for someone who would take grapes and put them in a vat and crush them until the juice came out. The word was used in ancient times when they wanted to produce a confession. They would lay a man down on a hard slab, and they would take a heavy weight and just put it on top of his chest. And it would just start to crush him. And every time he would exhale, it was almost impossible to inhale. And that's the word that was used here. They, they, they knew the tribulation, the pressure that's being poured out upon you, that crushing that takes place from the trials of this life. It was a way that they would get confession from a criminal or torture someone. One of the things that would lay the criminal again on his back, and that, that word there, a pressure, when he would, again, have it be an... It, couldn't even, as he would exhale, he couldn't even inhale again. Word Jesus used to describe the trials and tribulations that were taking place in Smyrna. You got a stone on your chest. You're being crushed. But you're not alone. I'm with you. Guys, whatever trial you may be going through, you may feel like you're being crushed. You're not alone. Being a Christian in Smyrna was to be under constant crushing, killing, can't catch your breath pressure. The temptation, just go down with the incense and sprinkle it in there, and then you can, 
you know, you can still love Jesus, you can still go to church, you can still, but then you'll be able to buy and sell. Yeah, you compromised your faith. Yeah, you, you turned away and, and, and did something contrary to the word of God. But, you know, just do that for a moment, then you can have all the world has to offer. And God bless, I want to meet some people from Smyrna when I get to heaven, amen? Because they said, we're not going to do it. And God knew. But not only did he know their tribulation, but their poverty. It says their end, their poverty. The, the, there are several words for poverty in the Greek language. One speaks when you, don't, when you don't have anything extra. You know, you got food in the house, you got clothing, but nothing more than the basic needs. But that's not the word Jesus uses here. The word poverty here means abject poverty, means absolutely destitute, one who has absolutely nothing. So Smyrna is this very prosperous city, Everything in Smyrna is popping. It's the trade city. It's very wealthy. It's beautiful. And the Christians who refused to burn the incense had nothing from the world's perspective. They had no food to eat, nowhere to lay their head. They were under great persecution. And again, the Christians were poor. Boy, that doesn't exactly fit into the name and claim and grab it and blab it mentality, does it? You know what I'm talking about? Turn on to what they call Christian TV sometimes, and you'll find out what it looks like, where they talk about, you know, you just got to claim it. You got to claim it. You got to believe it. You got to cast it. Oh, stop it. And if, don't tell me you got to manifest anything. I'll, I'll be manifesting a uh, head slap in Jesus' name. Can I get an amen to that? You got to manifest it. You got to manifest it. You got to say it. You got to speak it into existence. Guess what? There's only one who can speak anything into existence, and his name is Jesus Christ. We don't speak stuff into existence. That is nonsense and it's blasphemous, amen? But we have this entire movement, this word of faith movement that says your words can make God do things. And if you have enough faith, then every Christian should be rich and every Christian will never get sick. And then yet that everybody who's ever said that died. Can I get an amen to that? They were, they were poor because of their stand for the gospel and their refusal to honor Caesar as Lord, not because they were lazy. They weren't destitute because they were lazy. Now look, we should minister to those who are hurting and those who are poor, but the Bible also says a man who does not work shall not eat. Amen? And the Bible, if you read through Proverbs, the Bible also says that a man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. And when you read through Proverbs, you'll see second to wisdom is laziness. And laziness is, is something that God hates. God gave you hands and feet. Let's be about it. Amen? Let's be faithful to work hard. The result, they were fired from their jobs. Why? Because they wouldn't honor Caesar. Shopkeepers refused to do business with them. They were robbed. Their houses were plundered. Why? Because they were standing for the Lord. In Hebrews 10, it says this, of early Christians, joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods, knowing that they had a better and enduring possession for themselves in heaven. All the stuff on this planet, it's all going to burn. Amen? That new car you just bought, the Nick's coming. Can I get an amen to that? Right, Irfan? Right? Whatever that thing is that you, that you have in your life that you treasure, and it's good, we should be good stewards of the stuff God gives us. But you know what? That stuff that's, you know, it's funny. I love watching old Christmas videos and you look at all the presents that you got and you know, you realize you don't have any of those things anymore. Amen. It all passes away. It's all going to burn. But you know what? While we don't face the level of persecution, there are those in the world today that do this level that they faced in Smyrna. I used to go to India every year um, to teach pastors how to study and teach the Bible. And there was a, a Hindu village that became uh, a man there who became a Christian. He was disowned by his family. He was cast out, and no one would have anything to do with him. They wouldn't hire him. They wouldn't sell to him. They wouldn't let him draw water from the, the village well. And the result was he was in abject poverty. And I love uh, this letter because it challenges me to the core to do better, to live a holy and uncompromising life, because these Christians were suffering greatly, but they refused to compromise. I want to be a man who'd rather die with conviction than live with compromise. See, there are places in the world today, if you stand for the Lord, they'll take everything from you. And we get bummed out because, okay, sometimes we face persecution for standing for the Lord, but it's nothing compared to what our Lord went through, and it's nothing compared, again, to what many go through in the world today. 
Imagine being a dad and watch your wife and children suffer knowing that you could bring immediate relief if you would just compromise your faith a little. You go home and your family has nothing. There's no food. You can't get a job. No one will hire you. You're in abject poverty. You might get fed to lions tomorrow. They're threatening to kill your children. And all you have to do is take a little incense and sprinkle it in and say, you know, give glory to Caesar. And all of a sudden you could have a job the next day and everybody would be fed. I think it's a lot easier to suffer personally, but not my children, not my family. But you know what? Our Heavenly Father allows us to suffer because He knows what it will bring about His ultimate glory. Again, they could get that certificate. They could get that, you know, that card they need to travel, right? But they would not budge. And while we can be tempted to budge, to compromise for far less, notice that while the world hated them and saw them as destitute, Jesus saw them in a completely different light. You know what He saw them as? He saw them as what He says there, but you are what? Rich. He's not talking about earthly riches. Guys, are you putting faith in any kind of rich that can be lost? By the way, how's the stock market been the last 12 months? <laughs> yeah, I have a retirement account that's not what it used to be. Amen? But I have a better 401k. It's called heaven. Amen? And that can never be taken from you. See, they were living in poverty from the world's perspective. They had nothing compared to what the, you know, the world they could have in the world because they were standing for the Lord. And they, yeah, they were in poverty and tribulation, but they were rich. The key point how Jesus defines riches is far different than the way the world does. Even many Christians today, again, they define, if you're, if you're really a Christian, you should be wealthy and you should be driving a, a fancy car and wearing expensive suits. You got pastors that are buying $85 million jets. Don't worry, we're not doing that around here. It was an affront to the believers in Smyrna, just that call to worship the false gods of this world, and to every Christian who in the faith suffer for the cause of Christ, concerning not with earthly riches, but a heavenly one. You know, it's better to have nothing in this life to know that we're going to gain it all when we get to heaven. Amen? And sadly, there's some people that are trading heavenly riches for earthly ones. Well, I'd love to come to church, but you know, I've got to work double, triple, quadruple overtime so that I can have a third vacation house and another boat, Right? And what happens is there's this pursuit of things that are all perishing. And again, which having homes is fine. And, and again, having possessions is fine as long as they don't possess you. Amen? You don't make them more important than your relationship with the Lord. He's the most important thing. A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Amen? When you let go of something that's perishing, it won't matter. Again, I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I've done over 200 funerals, and nobody's bringing anything with them. Amen? Results are in, one out of every one person dies, and they all leave all of it behind, amen? These Christians were rich in Christ. They're redeemed, chosen, adopted, accepted. Read Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to see what true riches are, you see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed, chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven, enlightened, and assured. You've been sealed with a down payment on heaven in the person of the Holy Spirit. Guys, you may not have a lot compared to most of the world, but you know what? We got more than anybody could ever deserve because of what we have in Christ. Amen? And he says to them, yeah, you go through tribulation, but you're rich. And guys, if you're here this morning, you've given your life to the Lord, you're rich. And guess what? Those riches only get better. True riches are those that cannot be stolen or lost, but will last forever. Material riches can be an obstacle to the kingdom of God, an obstacle that some do not overcome. Remember the rich young ruler? Came to the Lord, I want to follow you. Go and sell all you have and come and follow me. Oh, that's too hard. I got a lot of stuff. If you got so much stuff that you don't have time to serve the Lord, it's time to get rid of some stuff. Amen? Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. See, often material riches are acquired and maintained at the expense of true spiritual riches. In the glory days of the, end of the Renaissance, the Pope uh, walked with the man and and marvel at the splendor and riches of the Vatican. And the Pope told him, we no longer have to say what Peter told the layman, silver and gold have I none. And his companion responded and he said, and neither can you say, rise up and walk. <laughs> Hello, amen. You know, Peter, Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he said, we don't have to say that anymore. We got all kinds of riches and you've lost sight of the Lord, amen. Guys, wealth can get in the way. 
And you know what? Be transparent. We'll find out where we are. I, I always give you a hard time about knowing how into ourselves we are by saying if I took a picture of the room and I put it on the wall, you'd go look at it, and the first person you look for is you. Amen? Which proves we're very self-centered. Amen? But don't say it. Just think to yourself, if you could win a billion dollars in the lottery tomorrow or see a coworker saved, which one would you pick? Well, I'd, I'd spend the billion uh, evangelizing the whole world. <laughs> right? <laughs> And there's this mentality where what, what really matters is people. The only thing we're taking heaven with us is people. Amen? And that's what matters. Notice he says there at the rest of that verse, he says, You're rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus said that. And here's what he's talking about. So persecution were not enough. Pressures weren't enough. Poverty wasn't enough. They had to deal with blasphemers. They had to deal with people that taught a false gospel and blasphemed the name of the Lord. And the word blasphemy there, uh, which means to vilify or to speak evil against God. Blasphemers were not pagan idolaters or Caesar worshipers, but those that claimed to be Jews. And again, he's talking about Israel in general. By the way, we're pro-Israel because God's pro-Israel. Can I get an amen to that? And this is a Jewish book written about a Jewish Savior, and all the early Christians were all Jews. So what he's talking about here, there were those who proclaimed to be following the true and living God, but they were not. They were blasphemers. They were not truly, they were of the synagogue of Satan. They were claiming to be true worshipers of God, and they were not. These religious leaders who claimed to speak for God, but rejected and blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ and persecuted his people. Saul of Tarsus, what kind of guy was he? He was a murderer of Christians. He was a persecutor of the early church. He held the coats while they stoned Stephen to death. He gave his life to Jesus Christ after having a head-on collision with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he became what you could argue the greatest example of a Christian who ever lived. Because before he knew Christ, he was a religious man who was lost. And then he came to know Jesus Christ and he became a mighty man of God. We don't want to be religious and lost. We want to live life sold out and set apart unto the Lord. Amen? But see, he's saying, look, there's blasphemers. I know the works. I know the trials. I know all that you're going through. I know the difficulties. They claim to speak for Jesus, but they mock his name. I've been watching a series on TV, and there's these people, they're all praying. And they're always praying, and and they're always talking about Jesus. But the more they talk about Jesus, the more I cringe a little bit, because I see that Jesus they're talking about isn't the Jesus of the Bible. They're always saying, well, you know, Lord, you have to give us this big sale. We need this big sale. Give us this stuff, Lord. You know, give us this big stuff. And all their prayers are never like of repentance. It's never of, I need to be, you know, forgive me. It's always give me, not forgive me. Amen? And that's a tra- it's so tragic to see that. And, and sadly, there are these people that wore the black robes and they were very religious. But what they did, everything they did was for their own glory and for their own name. And they rejected the true and living God and they persecuted those that followed him. Jesus said, you are, you are of your father, the devil. Can you imagine the guys in the black robes who thought they're the most spiritually mature people on the planet? I mean, I just imagine their heads exploding when Jesus said, you're of your father, the devil. Amen. <laughs> And can you just imagine, I just see their, their veins in their forehead about to pop. And those are the same ones that would call out, crucify him. Instead of repenting, they wanted to quiet him. Jesus is not a respecter of persons or positions. He's not that impressed with you. Get over yourself. Can I get an amen to that? I've got 47 letters behind my name. Okay. You know, and again, education's fine, but so what, Right? When we stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day, He's not going to be impressed with your accomplishments or the size of your house or how much money you made or how much you could bench press or whatever else you're proud of, right? All that stuff won't matter. It's what have you done with God's Son? And the exhortation here is, look, I know that there are those who call themselves followers of mine, and it's a doctrine of the devil that they teach. He's not a respecter of persons. He says, those who claim to walk with and speak for God but blaspheme His name and persecute his bride or the synagogue of Satan. So point number two there is because Jesus knows. Point number three, because it's temporary. Look at verse 10. He says, there, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, which you may be tested, and you will have tribulation 10 days. 
I think we would all like to sign up for 10-day tribulation, depending on how bad it is, right? But notice he says, do not fear. Now, the word literally means stop being afraid. So there were people who loved the Lord, and there were people who refused to burn the incense, and they would not bow to Caesar, but they were afraid. So as believers, we're going to have times when we're fearful. Amen? Now, we know that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind, but we're going to have times when we're fearful. And he says, do not be afraid. The Christians in Smyrna suffered under great persecution, and they were afraid. They were afraid of being fed to lions. They were afraid of being tortured. They were afraid of their families starving to death. But see, here's the point. Here's where faith is faith that's been tested, is you're afraid and you remain faithful anyway. Amen? You know it's not going to be easy, and you keep doing it anyway. When the world is throwing tribulation at you and you continue to trust God, And you can ask God, remove the fear, Lord. But even in my fear, help me to remain faithful until the fear goes away. Sometimes we think that Christians who endure persecution are almost superhuman, but the truth is they struggle with fear the same way we do. Well, yeah, well, that's that's the apostles. Dude, those are the apostles. Man, those guys, those guys were superhuman Christians. Dude, they all ran when Jesus got crucified. Amen? They argued over which one of them was the greatest, right? They weren't that great. They were the B-apostles as far as I'm concerned. Amen? C-apostles, D-apostles, boarding on getting an F-apostles, amen? And Jesus exhorts them, don't be afraid, not because the trials were over. In fact, he tells them, more are coming. Oh, by the way, more trials coming. Don't be afraid, but more stuff's coming. Look what it says there in the verse. Look what he says. He says there, don't fear these things you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of, the, some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Any of the things you're about to suffer, Jesus comes to them in the midst of great suffering and doesn't calm the storm, but in this case, calms his child. Why not to be afraid? Because the persecution will come to an end. There's a day coming when there's going to be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more death and no more suffering. Amen? He seeks to calm his children by letting them know that more is coming. It would indeed come to an end and their faithfulness would be rewarded So the devil is about to throw you, some of you, into prison. According to Jesus, the persecution about to come against the Christians was from the devil. By the way, when they got thrown in prison in those days, it wasn't for rehabilitation. They didn't teach them. They didn't teach them how to, you know, be a plumber. Okay, when they went to prison, it was to torment them and then to kill them. So he's saying the devil wants to throw you in prison. But like Job, what Satan was allowed to do was limited by God to bring about God's purposes. It says in Matthew 10, 28, And fear not one who can kill your body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Guys, as Christians, they can't threaten us with heaven. Amen? So that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Being thrown into prison was severe. Prison was not, again, a rehabilitation place, but it was a place of deep punishment. And normally you were thrown into prison to await your edu- execution. And to be a Christian, to walk in Christian church in Smyrna, was to take your life into your hands. It wasn't uh, for the lukewarm or faint of heart. And sometimes we don't want to go to church because our favorite football team's playing or because... It's cold outside, and there's a fire in my house, right? You know, God had a purpose in their suffering, and so he allowed it, and God uses suffering to purify us. It says this in 1 Peter, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if indeed be you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, Though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. I want to go read that again. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He's letting them know that these trials you go through will be for the glory of God in the end. God uses suffering to make us more like Jesus. It says in Romans 8, 17, If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together, that we may be witnesses of Him. The word tested there is proven. Through their suffering, God would display the true riches of the church in Smyrna, both to themselves and to others. Smyrna passed the test. Only one of the seven churches, again, is still in existence today, 2,000 years later, and it doesn't surprise me that it's Smyrna. Amen? 
Now, tribulation for 10 days, some believe it's talking about ages or, or, or through 10 emperors. You know what I think it means? 10 days, because that's what the Bible says. Amen? Too often people want to change it. But it doesn't tell them what will happen at the end of the 10 days, just that the tribulation will end. Guys, whatever trial you're going through, it will come to an end. Final point there. Again, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm because it's temporary, this shall pass. And then lastly, because it's worth it. Look at verse 10, 10, second half of that. Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. Jesus, who introduced himself as the first and the last, who was dead come to life, now he makes a promise that faithfulness would not go unnoticed. They would have victory over death, and there would be rewarded in heaven. The word crown there in the original language is Stephanos. It's a victor's crown. It's a trophy for a winning athlete. You know, athletes got a crown of leaves, so faithful believers get the crown of life. Christians in Smyrna pressured, persecuted, blasphemed, hated, mocked, impoverished, no doubt seen as losers by the world, mocked by the world constantly. But in Jesus' eyes, they were victorious. And you know what? As believers, may we live victorious Christian lives. Amen? Because they remained faithful. They make your earthly life, but they cannot touch your heavenly one. They can make your earthly life difficult but the enemy can't touch our eternal one. Paul's life coming to an end said this, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also all those who love his appearing. You know what? If you know Jesus, you're excited about his appearing. Amen? If you love Jesus, you love the sight of the cross because it remembers, it reminds you of the greatest act of love in all of human history. If you don't know the Lord, you hate the cross and you hate the thought of his appearing. God is faithful. Final verse. By the way, in Romans 8:18, one of my many life's verses, he says this: For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever suffering you're going through here is nothing. Anybody in heaven bummed that they suffered on earth? You think? Anybody? Anybody bummed? No, because it's temporary. Final verse. It says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. If you're born once, you die twice. If you die twice, you're born once. What does that mean? If you're born twice, you're born twice or die once. What happens? If you've been, you've been born physically, so you're going to die spiritually. But if you've been born again, you will never die. Amen? If I've been born twice, I'm only going to die once, the physical death on this earth, then I'll spend eternity with Almighty God. I'm dead to myself. I'm a new creation in Christ, and I'm going to spend eternity with God. But the people that only die once, again, if they've not laid down their life for the Lord, will spend eternity separated from Him. What crown am I seeking to attain? One that will perish, money, position, power, possessions, pleasure, or the one that will not perish, that has given to me those who are faithful in the end. It says in James, blessed is the man who endures temptation, but when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, and the Lord hath promised those who love him. Everyone has physical ears, but not all can listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. What the Holy Spirit is saying in this verse is don't be afraid. Be faithful to me unto death, and you will receive a heavenly reward. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This is a promise for overcomers. Amen? Appropriately enough. This is a promise for those who overcome the threat of persecution and the presence of persecution. We might say that we overcome by our close association with Jesus, who is the ultimate overcomer. I can't overcome without him. I only overcome through him. Amen? And that's the call that we see this church in Smyrna. It says in Revelation 20, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. There's something far worse than being persecuted as a Christian. It's not being a Christian at all. Let me close with this. I hear this often. People say it's hard to be a Christian. I say, no, it's not. It's hard to be an unbeliever. Amen? We may go through trials, but it's all temporary. And again, it's nothing compared to eternity. It's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. Amen? 
It's better to go through the worst trial that the world can dish out and know Jesus than have everything the world has to offer because you'll have no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. Amen? So this church in Smyrna is being exhorted and encouraged. Why? Because they were being faithful. He wants them to remain faithful in the midst of their trials to the very end. So in closing, remaining faithful in the midst of the storm, in the midst of persecution and trials, four reasons to remain faithful because of who we serve. You're not alone. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? God's, God's on my side. He's my homie. He's got my back. Can I get an amen to that? Number two, because Jesus knows. You're not alone. He knows. He cares. He's been there. You're his child. He loves you, and he goes through the trial with you. Thirdly, because it's temporary. The storm will pass. The suffering is for but a little while. Sometimes he's going to calm the storm. Sometimes he'll calm you and let the storm go. And then finally, because it's worth it. Our temporary suffering is nothing compared to our eternal reward. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you, Lord, for the promises we find in your word, not only to the church at Smyrna, but to the church today. Lord, if we will not bow to the things of this world, if we will continue to make you the the passion of our lives, if we will continue to serve you in the face of trials and persecution, Lord, we know that we don't go through it alone because we couldn't do it. But Lord, as you strengthen us and we walk in faithful obedience, Lord, we know that you will bless us. And we know that there's nothing this world can take from us that has any meaning in eternity. And so, Lord, I pray for everyone who's here this morning, whatever trial they may be going through, may they be encouraged, may they be strengthened, may they know that they're not going through this alone, that you're a faithful God, that you will never leave them nor forsake them. May you comfort them, may you strengthen them, may you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on you and not on the waves, to recognize, Lord, in the midst of the greatest storm, you're still in control, you're still faithful. And Lord, we long for the day when we will see you face to face. There will be no more pain and no more tribulations and no more trials. But in the midst of the trials in this life, may we count it all joy, knowing, Lord, you will use it to mold us more into the image of our Savior and to make us more into the men and women of God you've called us to be. Lord, we ask these things in your holy and precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. is he worthy to be worshipped?